Good morning, Memphis. Oh, it is such a beautiful day in the Mid-South, finally. Uh, thank you for spending some of this gorgeous Saturday morning with me. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Well, for K through 12 students, the school year is just about at its end or winding down very soon. And one central component of the school experience is student educator relationships. And I'm sure we can all remember a particularly impactful teacher, or maybe even a teacher that we kind of maybe had some conflict with. <laughs> but overall, how important are these student educa educator interactions and what roles do they play in our lives longer term? As young people, our relationships with teachers are just one way we interact with authority figures. But how else might interactions with authority, like the police, shape our experiences? To delve into these topics, today I'm joined by Dr. Brittany Fox Williams. Dr. Fox Williams is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Lehman College, City University of New York. Her research specializations include race and ethnicity, social inequality, education, urban sociology, and law and society. And in her scholarship, she examines the contours of racial inequality among youth in the American education and justice systems, especially as it concerns their interactions with authority figures. And this includes studying the role of trust in student educator relationships, drawing on longitudinal data from the NYC Department of Education and interviews in high schools, as well as how youth manage involuntary contact with police officers and how they cope in the aftermath of an encounter. Her research has received funding support from MDRC, the National Science Foundation, and the Russell Sage Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Brittany Fox-Williams. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And of course, good morning, Memphis. Happy to join you today. Yes, yes, we are so excited to have you. And okay, let me just start here since I did talk about, you know, us as young people having impactful, you know, educators in our lives. Was there a particularly um, impactful teacher that you had? Absolutely. That's such a great question to start out with. Um, so for me, there were a couple. So I'll just share a little bit of background. So I grew up in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia, Delaware County. Mm -hmm. And as you might imagine, um, the public school that I went to, right, many of the students and the educators didn't necessarily look like me. Right. I identify as an African-American woman and many of my peers and my teachers were white. However, I did have one African-American teacher all through high school who I really connected with. She actually became a longtime friend and mentor. Um, and she's someone who looked out not only for me, but for the other Black students at her school, right? Mm -hmm. She was from the community. She understood we were, where we came from. Um, and she really wanted to support us in this space that wasn't necessarily designed for us. Mm -hmm. There were also um, some white educators who I connected with as well. And so one person or one teacher who really stands out to me um, was my uh, high school English teacher. 
Um, he encouraged me to take his honors English course when I was in 12th grade. Um, and I just remember the curriculum in that class being very um, white centric. Mm-hmm. But when it came down to do this final project, he wanted us to choose a series of books by the same author to write our final paper on. And I remember com- him coming to me while I'm looking at the shelves in a library and just kind of like, come here, I want to show you something. <laughs> and of course, he shows me books written by Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think there were any assumptions there that those were the authors I should be reading. But I think it was more of an encouragement of saying, like, I understand you may not see yourself in the curriculum. And I think this is a way for you to be able to do that. Um, wow. So that really started like my love of literature, the work of Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou. Um, and those teachers really stick out as people who really cared and made a difference. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, that's so wonderful. And then to think about how you sustain some of those relationships, even over time. I think for me, when I'm thinking about some teachers that really encouraged me or made me feel like learning was like a space for me, I'm thinking about my first grade teacher, Miss Lacey. And, you know, she was one of the first people who really encouraged me to like continue my love of reading. Um, My parents were very determined to make sure I liked to read (laughs) only because my dad really hated it and he knew it caused so much problems um, in education because so much of it is reading, right? Like that's the basis of like K through 12 and he didn't like to read. And so it was just such a struggle. So they were like, you're going to like to read. And what that translated into is I did really like to read and I was, you know, kind of like an advanced reading level. And so my first grade teacher really like fostered that. And that always stuck with me. Um, But as you were talking, I was thinking about Um, when was the first time I had a teacher that looked like me, an Asian American teacher? And I don't think ever. I'm not surprised by that. Like, I'm like, did I ever, ever, ever? Um, And I'm not sure. I will have to think more about this after later today. I'll think more about this. But I had, of course, a lot of teachers who were white women, and then I had um, teachers who were black women as well. And then by the time I got into high school, then I had, well, no, middle school, then I had black male teachers as well. Um, But it is always interesting to think about, you know, who is teaching us? Do we see ourselves reflected in the people who are teaching us or even in the curriculum? Usually that answer is no for people of color. Uh, So all of this is impacting our educational experience for sure. Now, I know for you in particular, you look at this idea of trust. And so tell me more about why trust is important in the educational context. Thank you for that question. So when you, you know, brought up your initial question to get me to kind of reflect on those experiences that I had as a K through 12 student. Um, Later in my life, right, I reflected on those and like thought about like, what was the essence of those relationships, right? Mm -hmm. What made them really work and allow me to connect to those educators. And after thinking for a while, the concept of trust is something that came to me, right? I was thinking about, you know, these relationships were really based in trust. I had to trust that these educators held me to high expectations. I had to trust that they didn't use my race or gender to make uh, preconceived notions about me as a student. I had to trust that they had my best interest at heart. Um, So I went into the doctoral program with this idea to study trust and student 
educator relationships. And so it really led me down an interesting path, one, to understand what trust is in American society. Um, and so we could think about trust a number of ways, right? We could think about our trust in, you know, specific individuals, right? And so we usually refer to that as interpersonal trust. We could think about how we conceptualize trust uh, more generally, like, so do we have trust in most people in society? Um, so we could think about that as generalized trust. Um, also trust in people who look like us, right? Particularized trust and then trust in specific institutions. So thinking about trust in our schools. Um, and then also some of the work that I started to find, right, thinking about trust and relationships between Black students and their educators, some of the work that I was reading suggested that African Americans are least likely to trust overall, um, especially when we're thinking about most people in society, and that's usually attributed to experiences of historical discrimination and racism, contemporary discrimination and racism, um, and so I really wanted to parse that out and understand like how does this work apply to students um, and how can we think about what we know in the trust literature to really try to leverage trust to improve student teacher relationships. Mm -hmm. Yes, that trust is so important. As you were talking, I was thinking, you know, we may not, trust might not be top of mind as we're evaluating our relationships with our teachers, but we definitely know when that trust isn't present. Uh, when we, you know, when we don't feel safe in a relationship with an educator um, for whatever reason, um, and how that then can impact our own, you know, attitudes towards either that particular teacher or a class or even to education, you know, overall. So in those ways, even if we're not, you know, consciously kind of examining our levels of trust, they are still very much impacting, you know, our experiences in the education system. So in your research, as you're thinking about this question of trust, first tell me, how did you even measure what that trust looked like? And were you looking just at um, students and their trust of teachers or educators and even how they thought about or if they were thinking about building trust with students? Wonderful question. So I looked at this topic in two different ways. So I looked at it quantitatively using survey data. And then I also did some interviews in schools with students and educators. So I'll talk first about the quantitative work that I did. So I'm based in New York City. I conducted my research here in New York City. And the New York City Department of Education Education conducts an annual school climate every, um, every year, a school climate survey every year, excuse me. Um, and they administer that survey to students, educators, and parents. Mm. And so I was fortunate enough to get some access to individual level student data to try to understand how do they feel about their educators and specifically topics of trust. So there's a module in that survey that asks um, several different questions about trust. Oh, okay. Because the New York City Department of Education thinks that trust is important, right? <laughs> I think it's important. You all have the data. This is a perfect, you know, setup. Right. Um, so I analyzed those data at the student level and actually broke it out by student racial group. Mm -hmm. So to see if there were any racial differences in the extent to which students trust their educators. And then I also did some within racial group analysis, right? Because we know that racial groups are not monolithic. People's experiences vary, right? Based on other kind of markers of their identity. And so what I learned through this analysis with the survey data um, is that Asian students generally um, express the highest levels of trust in their educators. Mm. Black students express, express the lowest levels of mm. trust in their educators. However, there were some important variations happening within group. Mm -hmm. So 
So across all racial groups of students, um, and the way that I was able to break down the data, I was able to look at students identified as white, Latino of any race, uh, Asian, and Black. Mm -hmm. And so what I found across these racial groups is that students who are um, immigrants or who are not born in the U.S. tend to have higher trust in their educators than native-born students of their same racial group. And then I also found that for the most part, um, young women had more trust in their educators than uh, young men, with the exception of Black girls. Mm. Black girls had the lowest levels of trust in their educators across all racial gender combinations. So, I mean, it's still a, a finding that I'm trying to disentangle, right? Mm -hmm. But I think we need to think about like what this means for Black girls, right? Black girls generally tend to outperform Black boys academically, mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are having the same types of edifying relationships with their educators. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, could you tell me what some of those questions were that were already included in this um, climate survey that you were able to yeah. use? Yeah, so there are a couple of questions. One of the questions in the trust module was, my teacher respects me. Mm -hmm. um, if my teacher tells me not to do something, I know they have a good reason. Um, and then there were some other questions about just generally the extent to which students felt comfortable in these relationships, right? If mm -hmm. They felt comfortable going to this educator to share information mm -hmm. with them. Wow. And so I combined them and create like an aggregate measure of trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you were sharing that finding about, um, Black girl students, it was just making me think about the data that we know that Black girls are receive more educational disciplinary action um, and that there is a bias with educators in disciplining Black girls in ways that they don't discipline, you know, children or students of any other race or gender. So I'm thinking about how that plays into, you know, your own findings as well. Absolutely. So think I'm thinking about some of the work of Monique Morris, right? The book that she wrote on Push Out. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about some of the other work um, that I've seen in sociology where educators will usually dub Black girls as like loud and unruly, right? But that same behavior, if expressed by girls of another racial group, won't be dubbed in the same way, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so this is where the qualitative research came in. It was really helpful for thinking about how do Black girls feel about this, right? What does trust mean to them and how are they thinking about their own relationships with educators? Um, so with the qualitative work, I um, was granted access to two New York City public schools, one that I call Lower East Side High School, which is located in Lower Manhattan on the East Side. Mm -hmm. um, and the other I refer to as East Harlem High School located in East Harlem. And so I interviewed 35 Black students, male and female, some were immigrant, non-immigrant, some identified as um, Latino, non-Latino. Mm -hmm. And I also interviewed 20 educators across these schools, right? So I sat down and had conversations with these young people to really understand like what trust means to you and what is your general experience um, in schools, right? In New York City public schools. And so some of the things that they were telling me um, were around like what they think trust means to them generally, right? Because you have the survey, right? And the survey gives you kind of one um, glance into what trust means. But like, I really wanted to ask these young people, like to you, what does trust mean to you, right? And so they came up with two definitions generally, like in my analysis, what I saw them saying was like two different things, right? So students trust educators for personal reasons, 
Mm. Right. Is this educator safe? Can I tell this educator what's going at home, going on at home? Mm -hmm. Right. Will they appreciate who I am outside of the classroom? Mm -hmm. And on the other end, they talked about educational trust. Right. Can I trust this teacher to teach me what it is I need to know um, to do well in my future? Um, can I trust this teacher to treat me fairly in the classroom and grade me fairly? Mm. Um, and so, I mean, girls and boys that I talk to share these same definitions of mm. trust. Um, but sometimes in some cases they may have used different markers to determine whether a teacher is trustworthy. Right. Ooh, wow. I'm thinking like, how much was I thinking about trust as a young person when it came to my educators? But again, all of these experiences very much shape you know, our formative years, our experiences with our educators, our experiences in the education system. So I think this is such important work. Um, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, I'd like to hear more about what these young people were telling you when it came to trust. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Brittany Fox-Williams. And we're talking about the role of trust in student educator relationships. And before the break, you were starting to talk about some of the interviews that you conducted with young people in um, schools in New York City and their ideas about trust and what that looked like in regards to their relationships with educators. And you talked about this personal trust and you talked about educational trust. And so I'd like to learn a little bit more about how you saw these different dimensions of trust kind of playing out or how maybe the students, if they thought either was more important or what that really looked like in these conversations you were having with them. Absolutely. So when young people were having these conversations with me about what they mean by trust, right, whether it's personal or educational, they weren't necessarily parsing them out themselves. I think in many ways, these two forms or two dimensions of trust were very much connected for these students, right? I separated them, obviously, in my analysis for, um, for analytical purposes, right, so we can understand the differences in these two dimensions. But what I was hearing from the students is like, it's hard to trust a teacher with like their educational life if they can't necessarily trust them with their personal life, right? And vice versa. Some of the things that young people, they actually picked up on certain characteristics of mm -hmm. teachers to determine if they were actually trustworthy or not. Mm -hmm. And so I separated those into like three different characteristics of trustworthy educators. The first characteristic that they were pulling on was whether they thought a teacher was attentive, mm, right? Yes. And so an attentive educator is that educator who picks up on how you're doing, right? Mm. If you show up to the classroom and you're not having a good day, does that teacher notice? Yeah. Right? Could they tell like, you know, it seems like you're not having a good day today. Like what happened? Um, how can I help you? or just even just paying attention to them. I had one student tell me um, he was on the basketball team and he remembered a time that he showed up to the classroom. It was a Monday, um, his team lost a game on a Friday and he was just really upset, right? It was like the finals. And he was like, this teacher actually noticed and cared, mm -hmm. right? And showed that she was attentive to how I was feeling, right? And how I was doing. Mm -hmm. Another characteristic that they described was um, whether teachers can be discreet. Mm. Right. And so I think about discretion in the same way that we would think about it as adults. Like, could you tell this educator something yeah. and could they keep it to themselves? 
Right. Especially if it wasn't something that could cause you harm, right? Or you weren't in harm's way. Could they keep that to themselves, right? Or are other teachers going to be talking about it in the teacher's lounge, right? Or are other teachers going to be approaching you about that issue that you told, right, that one teacher? Mm-hmm. And then a final kind of characteristic of educators that they found trustworthy is whether they were familiar, mm-hmm. right? And so this one is really interesting to me because familiarity can mean an educator who perhaps looks like you mm-hmm. or comes from the same type of neighborhood that you come from, right? So for my black students, they could be a black uh, educator, right? Or if it's a black girl, black woman educator, or if this student is from, let's say Washington Heights in Manhattan, does that educator come from Washington Heights or a similar neighborhood? Mm-hmm. But it can also mean for um, teachers who don't share their racial identity or their personal background, do these teachers understand black youth cultural capital, right? Mm-hmm. When young people are using their cultural capital, you know, they're using certain terms like in New York now, it's like bro. Everyone calls each other bro. Whether it's a girl, it doesn't matter, right? You're bro, right? Do teachers get this, right? Do they understand the lingo? Do they understand where students are coming from culturally? And do they value that culture? Mm-hmm. And so those were like the three kind of characteristics that they were picking up on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, as I was listening to you, it was just really emphasizing this very human need that we all have to be seen, be seen fully and to be valued, right? In that seeing and how people are seeing us and understanding us. But also this idea and just thinking about the ways that you were um, thinking about the, the two types of trust, right? That personal and educational but how you know we don't ha- we don't lead segmented lives, even though it, you know we might <laughs> it might seem that way sometimes we don't. What's happening in our home life or personal life is impacting um, our performance or our mood or whatever in the educational setting, and vice versa. And how you know we can't be expected to come into you know this, the classroom as just you know our brains ready <laughs> to learn. Right, but, it's know. empty vessels. It doesn't work like that. Right. It doesn't work like that at all. And so it's so important that educators, those people who are authority figures in our lives, very prominent people in our lives, whether they want to be or not, you know, it is important that they see us and that they, you know, have some sort of connection. Uh, But how important is trust Mm -hmm. to students or to student outcomes? You know, why does this matter? That's Another wonderful question, right? (laughs) And so I think trust, I'm going to talk about the outcomes in a moment, but I think trust matters just outside of the outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. It's important for students to have adults that they look up to, right? Who they feel like appreciate them, who value them, Mm -hmm. right? And so we can think about that outside of like educational metrics and measurement, but like, what do those relationships feel like? Are they comforting? Are they edifying? Do they build young people up um, given those relationships? And I think about this a lot in terms of social capital, Mm -hmm. right? We know that trust matters for social capital, right? And so when we're thinking about social capital, we could think about it as those relationships that you build that help you gain access to resources that you're gonna need in your life, right? So you think about social networks, people that you know, how they can connect you to resources sources or opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so young people who trust their educators are more likely to reach out to them for those opportunities to ask for a recommendation, right? Mm -hmm. To ask them about, you know, they have questions about the college application process. Mm -hmm. 
or they wanna apply for a scholarship or an after-school program, right? So trust is really important for that, for young people being able to reach out to educators to gain access to those resources. At the same time, um, some of my research that I'm working on now provides an indication that trust actually may also matter for those educational metrics. Mm -hmm. So I um, ran some analysis on the same survey data, also included some student administrative data on students' grades, their test scores, um, or standardized test scores, their attendance, and also their discipline. Whether they've been suspended um, or received uh, a detention, for example. And so what I'm finding so far in this analysis is that trust actually appears to matter for these things, right? Mm -hmm. So students who are more trustworthy in their educators appear to be more likely to show up to school, right, to have higher attendance rates. They seem to also have... Um, enhance standardized test scores, perhaps. Um, and also, they are less likely to be suspended, right? And so someone may say, right, correlation isn't causation. Maybe there's something going on there. Maybe it just happens to be that those students are, who are higher performing just generally tend to be more trust, trusting. And so what I did is I also ran these models called fixed effects models, which allows you to compare students to themselves over time. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking within the same student and seeing that as trust increases, these individual students outcomes are improving over time. Mm -hmm. This is such important work, again, because so much of our lives are spent, you know, <laughs> in the educational setting. So that K through 12, that big chunk you know, of our lives, but then also how much um, what happens in the K through 12 setting really sets us up on a certain type of track for the rest of our lives. So if we think about test scores and what that might mean for if we go to college, or on the other hand, if we think about disciplinary action and how that might lead a student to be labeled as someone who is unruly or you know has some sort of behavioral problem. So I think it's so important to think about these issues of trust. Thank you. So are there ways that you're thinking of expanding this research? Yes. I appreciate that. So I am. I am thinking about ways to expand this research. And I recently um, received some funding from the Russell Sage Foundation to continue this work. So in my prior work, I did interviews with students and educators at two high schools in Manhattan. These schools really model the typical high school where it's predominantly black and Latinx students, predominantly white educators, right? Um, that's generally what schools look like in this city. But I'm curious about how school climate generally contributes to trust and whether trust may look different in different types of schools. So I'm planning to add two more schools into the study next year, um, a predominantly black school, which is predominantly black students, predominantly black educators, mm -hmm. and then a school where black students are few in number. And to see how does trust play out in these schools, right? Do students define trust in similar ways? Are uh, teachers using similar strategies to build trust? Um, and to just really get an understanding of not just the kind of um, dyad relationship, right, between one student and one educator, but to think about how the context of school or the school environment itself either um, creates or hinders trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about my elementary school, one of my elementary schools, and I feel like, you know, looking back, that the school itself had a, had, 
intentions on creating very trusting relationships um, between, you know, educators and students and also being very involved in students' lives. Um, but I'm also wondering how my classmates felt. Did they experience it in the same way or think about it in that same way that I did um, or not, right? So thinking about race and gender and then, you know, just my own personal experiences and things um, during that time in my life, right? So I think it's such important work. And I have to ask, because I know you talk to educators as well. So how were educators thinking about this idea of trust? Yes. So educators are thinking about trust. Mm -hmm. I don't know necessarily if they're thinking about the specific term, mm -hmm. right? And I think this gets at something that you mentioned earlier um, is like, was I thinking about trust as a kid, right? You probably weren't thinking about the, the term trust, yeah. but you were making trust calculations, right? We're always making these calculations about whether someone or some institution or some context is trustworthy, right? Mm -hmm. So educators are thinking about how to build these relationships. Um, and trust is something that comes up in those conversations. But I think some of the interviews I was having with them reminded them like, oh, yeah, like, yes, trust is important. That's what I'm doing. Like, I'm trying to build trust in the classroom. That's why I do all that I do. Um, so I really, in one of um, the papers that, that I wrote, I honed in on one particular school mm -hmm. uh, because this school was really intentional about how they were trying to create trusting relationships between students and educators and just a general like kind of ethos of trust in the school. Mm -hmm. And so they really pulled on um, social emotional kind of learning and education and they implemented two programs um, that I studied a bit in depth and want to think about like how can other schools potentially apply them. Mm -hmm. So the first program was something called, um, they call it circles. Mm -hmm. So circles are basically something that happened during advisory period, which is typically um, either like the first period or last period of the school day. And they bring students and educators together in like these restorative justice style circles, mm -hmm. right? And they just ask questions how was your day, right? What was your high of the week? Meaning like, what was the high point of your week? What was the low point of your week? Uh, one question that I heard an educator ask, um, if you could have lunch with someone dead or alive, who would it be, right? Students brought up the fact that they have had loved ones that passed that they will want to have lunch with, right? And so these were really opportunities for students and educators to kind of shed their role, right? In the classroom and to just come together and just connect, mm -hmm. right? There's nothing that was off limits in these circles or these discussion circles. And on top of the fact, students were highly encouraged not to share any information outside of the circle, mm -hmm. right? And so that helped create trust between students and educators. Educators were also encouraged not to share, but it also helped create trust between peers, right? Right, between students. The other program that they implemented is something called a coaching, a life coaching program, mm -hmm. where they partnered um, an adult in the school with a few students. And they would meet on a weekly basis and the educator would just talk to them about how their week is going, how their education, you know, uh, trajectory is going, how they could help them. Sometimes they would take them out to lunch or like take them out for their birthday, right? So it was a way for students to connect with adults outside of the classroom and really get to know each other one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and students really cited those particular programs as helping them build trust with their educators and their peers in the school. 
Mm-hmm. I love that idea of the circles. I think that's so great. I mean, and just thinking about how that concept about those types of conversations can be used in other settings, right? Within your families or friend groups or just other types of organizations that you're a part of. Um, so I love that. Just really learning how to communicate on a deeper level and make those connections with one another, um, which I think can be somewhat more difficult when we're so social media oriented, which doesn't really allow, you know, for those deeper connections. But then also I love that idea of kind of um, changing up the power dynamics in the educational setting and connecting teachers and students connecting as just people and not via positions of power or positions of less power. So I think that's so great that this school really has taken that initiative um, to implement these types of activities. So that keep, that really excites me. I'm very hopeful <laughs> uh, that that could be something that other schools you and me both. <laughs> Yes, well, let's take another break. And when we come back, I wanna get into some of your other research that's looking at um, young people and their involuntary interactions with police and and find out more about your findings in that area of research. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm joined by Dr. Brittany Fox-Williams, an assistant professor at Lehman College, City University of New York. And we're going to shift focus now. While previously we were talking about student and educator relationships, I want to change gears a little bit because I know you also have done work looking at uh, young people and their involuntary contact with police officers. So I want to spend some time talking about this research as well. I think it's so important, especially because we've seen such um, increasing attention over the past several years to police civilian interactions, um, mainly focusing on adults, but we also know that there are interactions with young people as well. Um, So first, can you talk about just a little bit of what led you to this particular research question? Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a moment, I think, in, in history and what was happening in the country. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so before taking on this work, um, Eric Garner mm-hmm. murdered by police officers in New York City and Staten Island. Uh, we had Mike, Michael Brown, you know, who was murdered in Missouri. And so this was on my mind at the time as a graduate student. It was on the minds of my peers, my family, my community. And so I was curious about how young people were processing this, mm-hmm. right? So I focused, focused the study really on New York City youth, particularly Black youth um, in the city. I wanted to get an idea of like how they were thinking about what they were seeing on social media and in the general like news media, but mm-hmm. then also how what they were witnessing shaped their own kind of perceptions of police officers and their own... Um, ideas for how to manage interactions if they were to come in contact with the police officer. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So important. And so tell me more about the young people that you're able to talk to about these issues. Yes. So I talked to um, nine young people in New York City. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they included um, young people who identified as both uh, male and female. Mm -hmm. Um, And I focused on a group that I refer to in this study as quote unquote on track, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll explain what that means. So a lot of the work that's been done 
on youth police relations has really focused on what researchers like to refer to as marginalized young men, mm -hmm. right? So perhaps young men who are disconnected from the labor force, right? Maybe they live um, in low income communities perhaps. But what I know and what I've seen is that these are not the only young people who are exposed to police contact, mm -hmm. right? So the young people that I interviewed, all of them were connected to the labor force. Um, they had, you know, middle-class aspirations. Many of them were enrolled in either high school or college or had plans to do so, mm -hmm. right? And so you get this kind of idea when we're thinking about policing that if you do all the right things and you say all the right things and you embody, right, the right type of um, kind of way of moving through the world, that you're going to be safe from these interactions when in actuality, that's not the case, mm -hmm. right? So I wanted to interview these young people who folks often forget about when it comes to the policing research. Yes. So in talking with these kind of on track youth, what were they talking about? Had they had interactions already with police um, or how were they thinking about what they might do if an interaction happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So many of them described. So first I'll start by saying that these young people had a variety of types of interactions with police officers, right? There was one young man who really couldn't recall a time that he had an encounter with a police officer, right? But he took some time to kind of dig and think through his memory. And I think the only thing that came to him was at one point he was like hauling some laundry down to the laundry room in his apartment building in, uh, in Brooklyn and a police officer like stopped him on the way up. It's like, hey, you know, where are you going? He's like, oh, I'm going to do laundry. And that was pretty much it, right? Mm -hmm. Again, I mean, the fact that you have a police officer in your place of residence, right? When you're trying to do normal everyday things, that's a whole nother story. On the opposite end of that spectrum, there was an another young man. Um, they were both about the same age who at the time I interviewed him told me that he had 15 involuntary encounters with police officers that he could remember, wow. right? And one of the most, um, I don't know how to describe, like one of the most egregious encounters, right? Or the most violent was he was on his way home from an after school program uh, and he was stopped by the police. And uh, it, it, it was at a time when stop and frisk in New York City was just like rampant. Mm -hmm. um, and he recalled being hit over the head um, by the police officer, I believe like with his flashlight and mm -hmm. him going unconscious and waking up sometime later, right, to an empty train station, right? So their, their interactions varied a lot. And I think the extent of those interactions determined how they interacted with officers, right? How they tried to manage those, those interactions. And so the young people um, came up with like, they talked about three different types of strategies that they typically used mm -hmm. to either try to avoid the police or to like limit the amount of harm that they experience. Mm -hmm. So the first strategy was avoidance, right? And so avoidance strategies were really marked by young people trying to just steer clear of officers, mm -hmm. right? They saw a police car coming down the street, right? They maybe went to the next block, right? Or they saw an officer walking down the street, like maybe they moved over to the other sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they didn't give an officer eye contact, right? And so we could talk about that a little bit more like what eye contact means, mm -hmm. um, but it was really an attempt to kind of steer clear. Um, some of the young men also talked about um, how they dressed and comported themselves as a way to try to avoid police contact. Um, but many of them recognize that even doing that isn't necessarily going to save them from those encounters. 
Right. Um, another type of strategy that they talked about was management strategy. So like how they actually manage an interaction to avoid like um, experiencing any type of harm or to limit risk themselves. And then a third type of strategy they talked about was something called symbolic resistance, where they actually tried to resist or defy the power in those interactions, but while doing so very subtly, so as to not bring harm to themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned this um, strategy of avoiding eye contact. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that both the young men and young women that you interviewed both used, or did you see any gender differences? And then also, how effective was that strategy? Yeah. So the avoidance of eye contact, right? And so it even makes me think about when I was a young person and just wanting to avoid being seen, mm-hmm. right? Maybe you don't want the teacher to see you in the back <laughs> of the classroom, right? Or you just want to like, just have some own personal space to kind of just hide yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that was a strategy that some of the young people described. Like they just wanted their own personal space. They didn't want to be seen. And so they would avoid eye contact with officers. Mm-hmm. One, one young person described it as like trying to become invisible, right? When in reality, um, it doesn't necessarily make the young people invisible, right? And it could be read by police officers in a completely different way, right? right? If we think back to um, Philando Castile, right, and his murder by police officers, the police officer actually testified that uh, Castile's lack of eye contact Mm -hmm. is what contributed to his decision to pull the trigger, which is ridiculous, right? not providing eye contact can also be a form of deference, right? In certain cultures or communities, right? Or a way to just try to avoid harm or to just try to prevent something from happening, right? So it's possible that police officers could be reading these strategies um, in the wrong ways. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you talked about these kind of symbolic strategies as well, these ways to resist, which I think is really um, important as we think about how do we, how do young people maintain a sense of kind of self, a sense of, you know, even self-respect or just saying like, I am not going to be degraded, you know, by this interaction. So I think that was really important as well. And were there any gender differences in those strategies? Yes. So that was the strategy for me that um, was most exciting, right? Because it's not something that, um, like I've seen it in other places in the literature, like how people subtly um, try to resist, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's been some work um, by anthropologists um, called like everyday resistance, right? And so that's what it really reminded me of is like this everyday resistance to try to maintain some dignity, Mm-hmm. in these interactions that felt um, disempowering, right? These interactions could be perhaps scary for these young people. And they were just trying to maintain, like you said, some sense of self and who they are. And so I will preface this by saying that symbolic resistance was not a strategy that was practiced widely mm-hmm. by the young people, right? There were only a few of them who mentioned it. Um, And it wasn't necessarily broken down in any way by gender that I could tell. Um, But there were a few things that these young people did to try to subtly resist, right? Or symbolically resist. So one is eye rolling, Mm -hmm. right? And so we remember, you know, when we were younger, like rolling eyes or cutting eyes, like that was the thing, right? You roll your eyes to show your displeasure or your distaste in something, Mm -hmm. right? So even if the police officer wasn't looking at you, even if their back was turned, like some of these young people describe like just a hard eye roll, like just to show (laughs) that they were just displeased, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then they also described sarcasm mm -hmm. as a way that they subtly resisted. So there was a young woman in the study um, who told me that on her way to school, right, in New York City, public school students receive a Metro card and they take the regular subway or bus to get to school. So they're given a student Metro card. And she said on the way to school, she would often be stopped by police officers who did not believe that she was a high school student, right? Mm -hmm. This gets to a whole nother issue of like the adultification of black children and youth, right? right. But I think for her, it got to a point where she's just like, being are y'all gonna stop me every time like you know she's telling jokes and being sarcastic mm -hmm. but at the same time she tells me that she remembers that she can't take it too far yeah right mm -hmm. because she doesn't want to be perceived as you know belligerent right she's like you know police officers can do anything like I don't want them to arrest me but I still want them to understand my displeasure and how they're treating me right absolutely I'm wondering from your work, you know, what is this telling us about, about young people's safety, both their physical safety, right, in these interactions, or even thinking outside of these interactions, but also their psychological safety, right? Police are, you know, a part of our lives, and especially in a place like New York, um, I imagine a part of young people's lives in ways that maybe aren't the same for a city like Memphis, right? Um, so what is this research telling us about just young people's own experiences of kind of moving and operating in this world? Yeah. And so I really like that question because it led me to think about like, okay, I know about these strategies that young people are trying to employ to navigate police encounters, but like, what does that mean more broadly? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it speaks to the strategies that black youth and other youth of color in general, right. Or poor youth try to use to navigate the structural inequality, right, of our society. And for these particular youth in my study, right, they're trying to navigate their racialized and urbanized lives in New York City, right? There are challenges that they may experience at every corner, right, at every turn, but they are trying to be very intentional about how they kind of navigate those landmines, if you will, mm -hmm. right? And so I connected this up to even some of the education literature, right, some of the research um, by Prudence Carter and thinking about how young people are navigating school and like school context and relationships, mm -hmm. how young people are trying to like resist, um, you know, the street interactions, right. Mm -hmm. And so connecting this all up to like how young people are trying to create their own agency mm -hmm. and trying to create a life for themselves, right. I think it's also though too important to remember that at the same time, like these young people have agency, but there are structural inequalities that are limiting mm -hmm. 